thanks for leading and thanks for leading us in worship this morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you all today. And let's begin with prayer. God, open our eyes and our ears to hear our invitation as we walk with Christ and follow him. Do this through the power of the Spirit present with us right now. And we say in the words of the church, come Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And today we'll move to Jonah chapter 3. Last week we looked at Jonah chapter 1. And for those of you who weren't with us, here's a really quick recap of Jonah chapter 1. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to because the Ninevites are horrible, violent people, and he doesn't want God's merciful character revealed to them, so he goes in the exact opposite way. And so God hurls a storm. He, he goes on a ship. And so God hurls a storm, and there is chaos, and the sailors don't know what to do, and Jonah says, it's my fault the storm has come to us, so hurl me overboard, and the sea will be calm. And the sailors don't really want to, but they end up having to do that. And then, of course, the sea is calm, and the sailors worship Yahweh. And Jonah, rather than sinking to the bottom of the sea, is rescued by a great fish when the fish swallows it, him. And I said several times in the sermon that the story of Jonah is not a story about a fish, even though that's often what we think of. Chapter 1 is a story about a chase. But this chase of God chasing Jonah, rather than ending in destruction and chaos, ends in redemption, as the sailors find Yahweh and Jonah doesn't die. And that's how chapter 1 ends. And then because this is only a three-week series, we have to skip chapter 2. But I, I do want to mention it because it's important. And in chapter 2, Jonah says a psalm. He sings a song from inside the fish. And there's two primary perspectives about this song. One is that this is Jonah's kind of back-to-God moment. Jonah recognizes how God has saved him, and he hopes again to go to God's temple. He says, I will look again toward your holy temple. He praises God for delivering him, and Jonah says that he will vow vows and sacrifice to God, just like the sailors did in chapter 1. In this perspective, Jonah's prayer is viewed as sincere and truthful. The second perspective is a little bit darker, and it notes that in the prayer, Jonah does not repent of his disobedience, nor does he promise future obedience to God by going to Nineveh. In fact, by saying he wants to go to the temple, he's saying he's going to go back to Jerusalem rather than Nineveh. This perspective uh, makes kind of sense, considering Jonah's character as it's revealed in the context of the book. And I, I do want to remind us that we're calling Jonah the worst prophet ever. That's probably hyperbole. But it's good to remember that the Bible isn't a book about great people doing fantastic things for God. It's a book 
that reveals God's character and shows us how, in spite of people's mistakes and disobedience and sin and failed attempts to do things right, that God prevails with power and strength, with love and compassion. And the hero of the book of Jonah is not Jonah, but God. So now we move to chapter 3, and I invite you to listen today as I read from the text. Usually our custom is to follow along, but you might be distracted if you follow along because I'm reading from a translation that you don't have in front of you. So the word of the Lord, chapter 3, the book of Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city Nineveh and proclaim to it the proclamation that I am giving to you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh because of the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was a great city to God, a walk of three days. Jonah began to enter the city, a one-day walk. He proclaimed, another 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they declared a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And when the report reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robe, he covered himself in sackcloth and set in ashes. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his great men, do not let person or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat and do not let them drink water. Let people and animals cover themselves and call strongly to God. All people must turn from their evil path and from the violence of their hands. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their actions, that they turned from their wicked ways, God relented from the harm which he had spoken of doing to them, and he did not act. The word of the Lord. So in the sermon title today, I use the word leitmotif. Maybe you don't know what it is, but it's, it's easy to know. You know what it is. You just don't know the word. Eric, will you help me out here? This is a leitmotif. A leitmotif is a theme. Can you play another one, Eric? Okay, so the first leitmotif was the Rebel Force theme, right, from Star Wars. And the second one was the Imperial March, right, Darth Vader. So who is present on the screen when those, that music plays, right? The music matches the character. Thanks, thanks, Eric. So leitmotif... Is a, is a word that might be new to us, but we all recognize it because it, it's a representation of a character or a place in film or opera or literature. Sometimes it's words rather than music. And the leitmotif shows what's going on. Often it's presented in variations, right? We hear Luke's theme numerous times throughout Star Wars, and it changes depending on sort of the, the texture of what's going on emotionally or externally for each character. 
Leitmotif are powerful artistic tools. And we just experienced that because we just all had this kind of, at least for Star Wars fans, this kind of experience together. So there is leitmotif in Jonah. Let's keep our ears open. So I invite you to turn, your, turn with me to, in your Bibles to Jonah 3, and we'll go through this passage together. Right at the top of chapter 3, there's a leitmotif. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So if you were here last week, you might remember this is very similar to what God says in Jonah 1.1. We could call this the leitmotif of Jonah's call. Chapter 1 introduces Jonah as son of Amittai, which means son of faithfulness, which is kind of an irony considering his actions and his unfaithfulness. And the command in chapter 3 is similar. In 1, God says, get up and go to the great city Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come in my faith or has come before me. And in chapter 3, God says, get up and go to the great city Nineveh and preach to it the preaching I speak to you. So they are similar, get up and go, and they're a little bit different, a variation. The first one talks about Nineveh's wickedness. The second talks about the importance of Jonah obeying God by preaching, the preaching God tells him. So what's interesting that happens after this is that we don't hear what God tells Jonah to say. It doesn't say there. It's kind of offstage or it's whispered and we can't hear. So we don't know the message that God told Jonah to share with Nineveh. That's important for us to note. So then Jonah obeys the word of the Lord and goes to Nineveh. Now, the text tells us a little about Nineveh. It tells us how big it is. That it's so big, it takes three days to go through it or three days to see it all. Okay? That's important because then what does Jonah do? He goes into the city one day. Is this full obedience? I don't know. <laughs> if it takes three days to see it all, he probably should have preached in there for three days. But he only preaches one day, and the message he preaches is quite peculiar. In Hebrew, the word is, in fact, a five-word sermon. Some of you might enjoy five-word sermons. <laughs> so, and it, so it goes, again, again, 40 days, Nineveh, and all the verb is one, so it, it, and it's ambiguous. It's either will be overturned or will overturn itself. So there's two possible meanings here. It's double meaning. So it means being overturned from an outside force, a military overturning, for instance, the outside force of God, like Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps. Maybe Jonah's thinking about that. Or it will be overturned from within. I don't know, a coup? Something different? Okay? Uh, and so that's the ambiguous message that Jonah preaches, this five-word sermon. But it is overturned. It's overturned right away and fast. Nineveh turns itself over with belief, with fasting, a sign of repentance by wearing sackcloth. This five-word sermon catches fire and takes off, and soon the whole city has heard, and the king hears. And then the, the king responds to this message. He stands up from his throne, 
He takes off his royal robe, he puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. That this is very foreign to us. Have any of you done that? Okay, so it's foreign to us. Um, the, the sackcloth and ashes are a sign and show of repentance. Now, I used to, when I would think of sackcloth, I would think of burlap, and that's a good start, but it's even worse than wearing burlap. It's a coarse black cloth made from goat's hair, and it was worn with wood ashes as a sign of, of mourning and for personal or na national disaster as a sign of repentance. There's a sense that sackcloth and ashes show on the outside what one is feeling on the inside. And we don't really do this in our culture. Even if we're feeling really bad inside, we still try to look good on the outside. But this is different. And so then the king and his nobles issue a proclamation. By decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And so the king is issuing a public call to repentance and turning from violence. Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overturned. And here it is, turning. Turning from violence, from torture, from a culture of dehumanization. And then also, this is funny. I don't know if you noticed. Maybe you thought, I can't laugh, no one else is laughing. But animals? Animals dressed up in sackcloth and ashes? Animals repenting? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, imagine if in order to show your own repentance and confession, not only did you dress yourself up in your oldest, raggediest clothes and, and torn, torn on accident, not purchased torn, and uh, maybe the stuff you paint the house in or work in the yard in and your old shoes, and you also dress up your pet in rags, and then both of you fast, no food, no water. This is, this is full public demonstration of repentance. Household pets, cattle, sheep, probably pigs. And of course, the animals don't understand. The, the people are crying out to God, and the animals are hungry. I, mean, I bet it's really noisy. And, and so Nineveh is so turned that even the animals have turned, and all living things have turned away from their violence. This is fantastic. Um, but there's something here else I want to explore. Because at the end of the king's speech, he says, who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. This is the big leitmotif. It doesn't show up in Jonah anywhere else, but this is leitmotif to the readers of the Old Testament. And this is the leitmotif that is ill-fitting. It's sort of like the Luke Skywalker theme playing when Darth Vader shows up. It doesn't match at all. Because this is from the story of Moses. This leitmotif first shows up in Exodus chapter 32, so, which is the story of Moses being up on the mountain with God. 
and the children of Israel have just been released from slavery, and they don't know what's going to happen next. I don't believe they really know how to worship God at this point. And Aaron, who's leading them in lieu of Moses being up on the mountain, has this horrible idea that he thinks is brilliant. He says, well, give me your gold, the jewelry you got from the Egyptians. I'll make a god for you. So he fashions a calf, and he sets it up, and he says, behold, the god who took you out of Egypt is a new sacrifice, and they uh, have revelry. And, of course, God gets angry. And he says to Moses, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? to kill them in the mountains, and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And then the Lord relented and did not bring on the people the disaster he had threatened. This is exactly the same as the words of the king of Nineveh, except the word for God or Lord is different. Seven identical words in a row. This is the first time we hear this theme. And this is a big deal. This is a big moment in Exodus. We hear it again in Jeremiah 18.8 and 26.3 when God tells Jeremiah both generally and specifically that if people turn from their evil way, God will relent and will not bring on them the disaster he had threatened. And then again in Joel 2.13 and 14, we hear some of the same words about how God responds to repentance. This is a leitmotif. This is showing up. And the crux of this message is, is that if the people turn, which means an actual, literally, turning, physical turning from evil to good, that when people do that, that God will, sometimes it says relent, sometimes it says repent, sometimes it says change his mind. In other words, God responds to our turning. When we turn, God relents from sending calamity. But what I want to note in the story of Nineveh is that God responds to the repentance, but it is also God who empowers the change that we see in the people of Nineveh. God is active in this story already because somehow the king of Nineveh knows the songs of Moses and Jeremiah and Joel. Was this part of Jonah's message? We don't know. That little five-word sermon Jonah preached, it didn't include anything about repentance or fasting and praying or wearing sackcloth or dressing up animals or about God. It didn't give any direction or point to God at all. And so it's hard not to notice how the king of Nineveh articulates the truth about God better than Jonah himself. The king of Nineveh is quoting from scripture. He's quoting Moses and Jeremiah. He is ordering mass repentance. Who's the prophet? Is it Jonah or is it the king of Nineveh? The, the king of Nineveh is a fantastic character in this story. He has this rapid character change. Remember last week, some of you here, here last week, I kind of spoke uh, candidly about the violence of the Assyrians. And, and some of the things they would do to people, right? But he has this turn from that. 
And then he's willing to dishonor himself, to remove the signs of his power and authority, to take off his robe, to sit in dust, to forgo his rich king food and his wine and even water and fast in repentance. This is turning. The story of Jonah, the whole, the whole book, all four chapters, is, is a story full of miracles, of the mighty acts of God. We've covered the storm that suddenly stops, the fish that swallows a guy, a guy that survives in a fish for three days. In chapter four, there's a super fast growing plant. <laughs> uh, but I think the biggest miracle is the repentance of Nineveh. It's not that Jonah is a great preacher. It's that the Holy Spirit uses his message and grows it, and the Spirit reveals to the king the city's need for repentance and turning, and they miraculously respond. And our hope is this, I think. If Nineveh can respond to God, to a preacher who preaches a kind of lame five-word sermon, who is beyond the reach of God? By showing this extreme example, the author of the book of Jonah shows us that, that even the worst people, the most violent people in the whole world, can turn from their evil ways and turn to God. And in that response, God relents and does not bring on them the calamity he has promised. And this is the leitmotif that plays behind God and even behind Jesus as Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So as I've thought about leitmotif this week, I've, I've wondered, like, what's our leitmotif? We could probably give a number of good examples here, right? The leitmotif of, of Christians as being saved through the grace of God, through the person of Jesus, right? That's a leitmotif, living in a a constant state of grace, the power of the Spirit in our lives, right? These can all be kind of biblical or theological leitmotifs that are hopefully transforming our everyday existence. But I thought, what's our leitmotif in response to this story today? And how can it be in harmony with God? How can our leitmotif be a constant turning to God in the words of Moses and of the king of Nineveh? And I've wondered if perhaps our leitmotif, at least this week and maybe further beyond, can become a prayer to Jesus that God, through the Spirit, will continue to call people out of their lives of violence and evil and into the kingdom of God. Because God is powerful, and God can do this. We're surrounded by news Maybe you still subscribe to the newspaper, or you have a news feed on your phone, or, or you watch a news channel, right? You see news on your Facebook feed, right? We are surrounded by news. It is something constantly that in our cultural context we hear. And the theologian Karl Barth talked about the importance of preaching with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. But I think that's also direction for us to pray. So we pray with the Bible in one hand and the news in the other. And so that when we see reports of violence, remember that there were a number of shootings last fall, for instance, so that our, our response isn't fear or Googling bulletproof vests, but our response is to go to God in prayer 
and to pray that just as God miraculously turned the hearts of the Ninevites to him and away for their violence, that God will turn the hearts of all people to him, especially in places that are deeply violent. So when you read or hear or listen to the news and reports of violence in Chicago, right, what is the death count this weekend? Or around the world, don't respond with half a heart. Don't let your first response be despair or anger or opinions about gun violence or demonizing perpetrators. God cared about the people of Nineveh, these horrible people that would skin people alive, tear out their tongues, and decapitate them. And if God cared about Ninevites, God also cares about violent people around the world. And so he cares about our neighbors on the south side, these communities that are struggling deeply and communities where there's many Christians and churches. God cares about our neighbors in Detroit and St. Louis. God cares about the church in China. I don't know if you heard this week, but several Christian churches were torn down this week. God cares about those who tore the churches down, and God cares about the people who are part of those churches. God cares about the people in the work camps in North Korea and the ones who oversee them. God cares about the people protesting in Tunisia right now, those who've been arrested and those who are arresting them. God cares about those who are caught in the traps of religious extremism, terrorism. God cares about people being driven from their homes and for those who drive them out. And so when faced with this news, allow your leitmotif to become prayer to God. And so we're going to start by practicing this right now. I, I invited before the service four people to help, help out here. We have a microphone I think they can use. So I invite the four of you to come up now, and we're going to participate in a prayer today about violence in the world, people who are perpetrators and people who are affected by it. And we can participate after the reader says, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We will all speak and in your love answer. So let's come before God in prayer. pray to you, O God, O Lord and Father, because we are encouraged by Jesus Christ, your Son, and our brother to do so. You have said through the mouth of the prophet, seek the good of the city and pray for it to the Lord. We therefore pray to you today for our cities and villages and for the whole land, for justice and righteousness, for peace and good order everywhere. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, and in your love, answer. We pray for those who govern. Teach them that you are the ruler of all and that they are only your instruments. Grant them wisdom for their difficult decisions, a sharp eye for what is essential. Grant them wisdom and courage to obey your commandments. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And in, in your love, love answer. answer. We pray for all who, by your ordaining, are responsible for justice and peace. We pray for all who continue to seek salvation amid violence. Show terrorists that no blessing rests in violence. Take the young among, among them, especially into your care, and bring order into their confused thoughts. 
bring murder and kidnapping to an end. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, and in your we love, love answer. We pray for all who are no longer able to sleep in peace because they fear for their own life and for the lives of those near and dear to them. We pray for all who no longer have hope in your kingdom and for all who are tormented by anxiety or despair. Grant that they may be blessed with faithful friends and counselors alongside them to comfort them with your strengthening gospel and sacrament. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And, and in, in your, your love, love answer. Lord, you have the whole wide world in your hands. You are able to turn human hearts as seems best to you. Grant your grace, therefore, to the bounds of peace and love. And in all lands, join together whatever has been torn apart. God, we pray for your kingdom to come, especially in places of deep, deep violence. And may your spirit remind us this week, rather than responding with despair, that we will respond in prayer and in hope, in your character, in your goodness, your compassion, and your mercy. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer, and in your love, answer. Amen.